But today our, our uh, scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 13 verses 1 to 13. And as we read, we remember this is God's word. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, and the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places, and There will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, Do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak, for whatever is given you in that hour, speak that, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Amen. We thank God for this reading from his truth. <coughs> Folks, you know that uh, two of the best days in my life took place in Kings Mills Presbyterian Church Meeting House. The first was the day I married my wife. And the second was my ordination and installation as your minister. With the exception of the birth of my two sons, those two were the best two days I have had in my whole life. And something that's interesting about that is that it's only really looking back that I can see that those were the best days. And I include the birth of Toby and Joel in that. At the time, they were exciting. There's no doubt about that. But it was excitement mixed with nerves and mixed with anxiety. Maybe you can understand that as, as you think back on some of the best moments in your own life, that feeling of nervous excitement. It, it comes from knowing that after this, everything is going to change. Nothing will be like it was before. It's like standing on the edge of a cliff, getting ready to jump. You just know that everything is going to change. That feeling of 
anticipation, a mixture of nerves and excitement about the unknown that just stretches out in front of you. Well, it's with that feeling in our hearts and in our minds that we have to approach Mark chapter 13. There is a real sense of anticipation in Mark's gospel. And as we get closer and closer and closer to the death of Jesus on the cross, the anticipation builds that everything is going to change. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark and we've seen this opposition building between Jesus and the religious establishment, the the religious system in Israel. And it's important to say that Jesus has not come to replace the religious system. He's come to fulfill it. The, The temple and religious system was only ever meant to be a signpost. It was meant to point people towards the Messiah. The religion of the Old Testament of of Abraham and Moses, David and Elijah, it was a good thing with a good purpose. But you know what happens whenever God gives good things to sinful people. The Jewish religion had become corrupt. And by the time Jesus came in the flesh, many people were making money, making profit out of being religious leaders. They were abusing their positions of power. They had added things to God's law. They abandoned the commandments of God and were holding instead to the traditions of men. Their power had corrupted them. And as a result, the whole temple system in Jerusalem, well, by the time of Jesus, it wasn't focused on the worship of God. It was focused on the ways the religious leaders could make money. They had twisted God. They twisted religion to suit their own means and their own ends. The very people who should have known their Bibles the best, the ones who were supposed to be the most religious, are the ones committing the greatest sin. So when Jesus came along, teaching something very different, calling out of all of those corrupt individuals for their sinfulness, Well, it's no wonder that the religious establishment are doing everything they can to oppose Jesus. In the previous chapter, in chapter 12, we saw that. The the various Jewish religious groupings came and they questioned Jesus. They tried to trick him, tried to trap him into saying something they could use as evidence to have him killed. Of course, Jesus dealt with all their questions brilliantly. He impressed the crowd. And he silenced the religious types. It's really important that we see in in Mark's gospel that the religious system represented by the temple where the religious leaders ruled has become corrupt. Remember the fig tree? It's not doing the thing that God created it to do. The temple was meant to teach people about salvation. It was meant to teach people that through God's Messiah or Christ, they could be saved. But when the Christ shows up, the very people who should have been able to recognize him are the same ones that want to kill him. Jesus is teaching the true religion the whole time. He's showing people what the Old Testament religion of Moses should look like. What does it look like without corruption? This true religion we saw last week is heavenly as well as earthly. 
because Jesus is a heavenly Messiah. The leaders of the Jerusalem temple were, well, they were grabbing everything they could, all the wealth and power that they could, because they thought that's all there was to life. But Jesus used the example of this poor widow placing two small coins into the offering plate. He used that to teach his disciples that in true religion, in his kingdom, people give away all earthly things for the sake of following Christ. And so now as we come to our passage this morning, do you have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 13? We see Jesus has been doing and saying these things. He's been teaching these things, answering the questions, but the disciples need more help. They need further clarification. That's often the case with the disciples. We're going to be in Mark chapter 13 over the next few weeks. But there's really one big idea for the disciples and for us to take in. And that is they're at the edge of a cliff. They're standing at the edge of something very significant. Jesus is about to die. And when Jesus dies, everything is going to change. Everything is going to change. The first thing that Jesus says will change is the temple. He says the temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. It probably feels for the disciples as if things are moving very, very quickly all of a sudden. You know, they were absolutely committed to following Jesus, but they didn't know everything yet. They still had a lot to learn. And they're discovering that their Jewish rabbi, their teacher, Jesus, seems to be opposed to the religion they grew up with. He's opposed to the temple system, which was so familiar to them. Maybe they could agree that there was some corruption among the people, but surely the buildings are okay. Surely the building is still good. They could still worship God in this great majestic building. You see verse 1 of chapter 13, one of the disciples says, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. The idea is that they're looking at the temple and saying, isn't it beautiful? Isn't this a magnificent, well-constructed building? We need to understand the disciples' mindset. To them, the, the, the temple was so much more than a building. It was a way of life. Their whole identity was tied to the temple. In reality, they were just reflecting on Psalm 84, which was our call to worship. They were saying, how lovely is God's tabernacle? What manner of stones, what magnificent buildings. And so it must have been an absolute hammer blow whenever Jesus said what he said next. Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left on another that shall not be thrown down. It's going to be destroyed. This is, I don't know, it's like taking a, a die-hard Liverpool fan to Anfield and saying, this is going to be destroyed. It's coming down. But not only that, the Jews' identity was so closely tied to the temple, it's like saying to that Liverpool fan, you know, your team has to play at Anfield. And so if it's destroyed, the club is going to be dissolved. Liverpool Football Club is no more. Even worse than that, you can't pick another team. 
Football is gone. Football is gone forever. It's been destroyed. The disciples are standing at the edge of a cliff. They're, they're waiting. There's something going to happen. and Jesus is headed for the cross. He knows what's going to happen. In a few days, he's going to die. And he wants them to be prepared because everything is about to change. The Old Testament temple is going to be destroyed, but not only the building, all of the establishment, all of the rituals, it's all going to change. This corrupt system which had been built up was going to be destroyed by the death of Jesus. But, as I've already said, Jesus did not come to replace the Jewish religious order, but to fulfil it. The temple, the religious system was only ever meant to be a shadow, a signpost, pointing people to the salvation that God would bring in the Messiah. And so in Jesus, the purpose of the temple is fulfilled. Remember again, Psalm 84, how lovely is your tabernacle, your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Well, we know from the New Testament that now in Christ, The fullness of God is pleased to dwell. So Jesus is literally the fulfillment of the temple. The glory of God was never in the buildings. It was never about the massive stones. It was never about the magnificent buildings. The glory of the temple was that that is where God was. That's where God dwelt with his people. And so now with the coming of Jesus, everything has changed. We we don't have to go to Jerusalem this morning to worship God. We don't have to go and look at a building. Because of the death of Jesus, all those who believe in him by faith can worship in spirit and in truth. And so that means that what we're doing here today when we gather as the church, not in any particular building, but with this group of people, Well, we can worship God in the name of Jesus. Jesus is the place where we meet God. By his word and his spirit through the ordinary means of grace that we receive in the church. The glory of this place is not the building. It's the presence of Christ. And Christ is with us right now by his spirit. That's why we come to church. That's how we should think about coming to church. We're here to meet with Jesus, to be with Jesus. We meet him in his word as it's read, as it's prayed, as it's sung, and especially as it's preached. The word of Christ. Well, verse 31, if you look to the end of the chapter, verse 31 of chapter 13 tells us the word of Christ will never pass away. It's eternal. And this New Testament temple will never be destroyed. Because it's not a building like the Old Testament temple. Jesus can't be destroyed. He proved that by his resurrection from the dead. It's in Jesus that we meet with God. And so as closely as the the disciples' identity was tied to the Old Testament temple, 
As closely as a, a Liverpool fan's identity is tied to Anfield, well, our identity as Christians is tied to Jesus. We find our whole identity in Christ because in him the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. And that's a temple that will never be destroyed. Were it not for the cross, if the death of Jesus didn't happen, well, what would we be doing here today? We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be gathered worshipping and praising Jesus. We are here because of Mark 13. We're here because everything has changed. The disciples are standing on the precipice. The first thing Jesus tells them is that the temple is going to be destroyed. And that changes everything. But something else is going to change as well. And that is that the world is about to end. The world is going to end. This is where we're going to spend most of our time over the next few weeks. I don't know if any of you spend any time in Christian bookshops. But the end of the world, end times, probably fills more shelves in Christian bookshops than anything else. Christians, we seem to have this obsession with when the world is going to end. In this chapter of scripture in Mark 13, and it's similar to other passages in Matthew and Luke, we read a lot about what Jesus calls the end. You can see it there in verse 7 and verse 13. Now, you don't need me to tell you this. The end of the world is a pretty big deal. It's a big event for any of us. It's a change. In the time that we have left today, I want to just show you something. that I think it's going to be really helpful when you read your Bibles regarding the end of the world. If you look at verse 4, the disciples have a couple of questions. This inner group of the disciples ask Jesus, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Those are two questions. They're connected, but they're different questions. If we take Jesus' answer, it has much more to do about the signs than it does about the time frame. Jesus answers the what question much more than the when question. I think that's important. Don't be looking for a time frame. Verse 5, Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be troubled. For such things must happen. But the end, the end, is not yet. Jesus is asked, what are the signs? And he says, there will be these signs, but that's not quite the end. The end is coming, but it has not yet come. And so what these signs demonstrate is something that is referred to as the already and not yet principle of end times in the Bible. All these signs are things that take place between the time that Jesus said them and today. The end of the world, you see, has already happened but it has not yet fully happened. It's already and not yet. 
one way to think of it is like D-Day. If you know anything about the Second World War, D-Day was the day when the war was won. It was effectively won on D-Day, but there were still battles to fight, there was still land to conquer, and there were still treaties to sign. The war had ended, but it had not yet ended. Already and not yet. And so this principle applies to us today. You see, the victory has been won. Through the death of Christ on the cross, the world has been defeated. The world has ended. But we still live in the world, don't we? We still live in the world. It's already and not yet. Many of the things that Jesus describes to the disciples in this passage are signs which have been observed throughout the ages. We might be thinking, Jesus says here about war. What about the war in Ukraine? Is that a sign that we're nearly at the end? But there's not really a time in the history of the world that you could go to in which there were no wars. There have always been wars, rumours of wars. So what we can say is this, we are living in the last days, the end times of this world. And we've been living in them ever since the death of Jesus on the cross. Verses 9 to 12 are, I think, a fairly specific description of what happens to the disciples immediately after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Immediately after even his ascension, they're a description of the book of Acts. Okay, so we're going to look at those in more detail next week, but here's the challenge for us today. We are living in the last days of this world. In fact, the world has already ended with the cross of Christ. If we believe that, why do we continue to cling to this world? Why do we put our hope and our trust in the things of this world? Putting our hope and our trust in the things of this world, like money and power and even health, well, that's living like one of the scribes, isn't it? It's living like someone who believes this world is all there is. As Christians, we don't want to live like that. We want to live like the widow who gave everything she had. We want to let go of this world. And we want to press instead to the world that lies ahead of us. We believe in the resurrection of the body, don't we? We believe in everlasting life. We believe this world is passing away. But there are everlasting, eternal glories awaiting us in the new life. The life that we can have only through trusting in Jesus. An American missionary to the AUKUS Indians in Ecuador, Jim Elliott, put it this way. Some of you might have heard of Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, the things of this world, to gain what he cannot lose, everlasting life in Jesus. Giving up your life in this world, dying to sin and living for Christ. 
to gain everlasting life in him. In the New Testament, Paul makes that a bit more concrete. Paul says this, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Friends, our lives as Christians are lived not for this world, but for the world to come. And we value those things which are of eternal benefit. We are living in this in-between time, a time when the world has already ended, but it's not yet ended. We are in the end times. We're in the last days. So we need to listen to what Jesus says and stand firm. The disciples were on the verge of something massive. The death of Jesus on the cross was going to change everything. Well, almost everything. Because God does not change. His love for his people does not change. In fact, it's when we look at the cross of Jesus, when we look at that sacrifice, when we see that he gave his life for our sake, we understand that he entered the storm on our behalf. That's how we know that the infinite love of God is unchanging. Let me pray for us.